Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with James B. John, Jeff Myers, and Alistair Roberts. Brian Motes, as usual, is uh, recording, and he'll be editing and smoothing everything out so that it can be released to your listening audience. Uh, before we begin today, I wanted to uh, mention that we're coming to the end of our first decade of existence as Theopolis. We had our first course in August of 2013, and uh, so we're celebrating our 10th anniversary this summer. We'll be celebrating that in part with our third annual conference that's coming up in July 17th and 18th. Alistair will be there, Jeff will be there, and we'll have a number of other speakers, including James Wood, who has been my co-host on the Civitas podcast that we launched last year. Uh, And a number of our fellows graduates will be speaking as well, and uh, you'll want to come and hear that. We also are having a feast on the evening of July 18th to celebrate. Uh, We're going to have some special music. We're going to have uh, reminiscence about the beginning of Theopolis. Uh, and Kelly Capick, who is a theology professor at Covenant College, is going to be with us to give, do an after-dinner talk at our feast. This is also a, uh, obviously a time when we're thinking ahead. We don't want to end with this, uh, a decade is a thing to celebrate. But we want to exist for many decades, not just one. So we're asking our supporters and friends to help us to get a good start on the next decade by donating to Theopolis uh, during this these couple of months in the summer. Our fiscal year ends at the end of June, so please consider making a donation to help us keep going. If you enjoy the podcast and you want the podcast to keep going, that requires funding uh, to uh, keep that going. So uh, please, uh, please consider that. And, and we invite you to come and join us for our 10th anniversary celebrations in July. That's coming up in just about a month. So we hope that many of you will be able to come. We're in the uh, sort of beginning stages of a series of podcasts on the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, we're going to be looking at the latter part of chapter 9 and into chapter 10 today. And we have to pick up chapter 9 because we didn't quite finish chapter 9 last time. But chapter 9 ends on a cliffhanger. It ends with Moses on the mountain on Sinai in prayer, uh, asking the Lord not to destroy Israel. The incident that he's describing and reminiscing about, reminding reminding Israel about, is the rebellion at the Golden Calf that happened at Mount Sinai. While Moses was on the mountain, you'll remember, Aaron uh, constructed a golden calf and led the people in worship of the golden calf at the foot of the mountain. Uh, and Moses came down, broke the tablets with the law, uh, and then went back up on the mountain and pleaded with the Lord not to destroy Israel. Uh, that's where chapter 9 ends with that prayer or a version of that prayer. So it's kind of a cliffhanger, and it's not until the beginning of chapter 10, about the first 11 verses of chapter 10, that we finally have the Lord's answer to that prayer. Uh, And the kind of closure to that whole incident comes in chapter 10, verse 10, where it says, Yahweh was not willing to destroy you. That, That verb destroy has been a key verb from the beginning of Moses' account of the golden calf incident back back at the beginning of chapter 9. He uses it a couple of times in chapter 9. Most recently in chapter 9, verse 25, Yahweh said he would destroy you. But then Yahweh's ultimate decision because of Moses' mediation uh, is that the Lord was not willing to destroy you. And so what we have here is a a broken covenant, a covenant that's made. Uh, Yahweh speaks the Decalogue. Israel swears to obey what the Lord has revealed. And then in the aftermath of that, they defect from the Lord and they go after other gods. So the covenant is broken. But then because of Moses' mediation, and Moses' intercession, the covenant is renewed. So we have, even while Israel is still at Sinai, we have 
a two covenant structure to the covenant. It's not just one covenant with Israel, but it's a covenant with Israel that's broken and then renewed. And that's what this uh, passage is recounting. And I, it occurred to me that a, a couple of things are crucial to this um, to this renewal of the covenant. One is the shattering of the tablets that's mentioned a couple of times that expresses symbolically expresses the shattering of the covenant. The tablets are a covenant uh, documents, as it were, and when Moses destroys them, it uh, symbolizes the the Israel's defection, the breaking of the covenant. But then those tablets are renewed, or a new set of tablets. Moses cuts out a new set of tablets, and the Lord writes on them. So tablets shattered, tablets remade. That's one of the uh, that's a kind of death and resurrection pattern for the tablets. But I think perhaps even more crucially, it's Moses who goes through that kind of experience. I, I refer again to Dennis Olson's very illuminating book on the death of Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, and this is one of the incidents that he sees uh, uh, Moses going into a kind of death experience. Moses goes up into the mountain. He goes into the midst of the fire, the consuming fire. He falls on his face. And for 40 days and 40 nights, he doesn't eat or drink. He goes into a kind of death state. Uh, and then the Lord tells him to rise. He stands on the mountain, uh, Deuteronomy 10.10. 10, I, moreover, stood on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. He was uh, had fallen down, and now he's standing on the mountain. He's He's been made erect. He's been raised up. And Moses goes through the, de- the death and resurrection experience that uh, is the, the basis for the renewal of the covenant. It's, it's his intercession, but in a sense, it's also Moses taking the shattering of Israel and the destruction of Israel on himself, experiencing that death in the presence of the Lord and then being raised up. That's that's the hinge of this covenant renewal process. And of course, that's all pointing ahead to the double covenant that we have in the large the large scale of Israel's history, of the history of redemption. Uh, the first covenant that uh, Paul talks about, uh, second, second Corinthians 3, I think, is a passage that uh, will probably come, uh, come into our discussion a number of times, because there Paul is giving his version of what happened at Sinai and the golden calf incident and the shattering of the tablets. And the uh, turning point or the the contrast that Paul draws is between a covenant that involves Yahweh writing on tablets of stone and then Yahweh writing on tablets of the human heart by the by the Spirit. That's the contrast that the, in Second Corinthians three. But we already have a kind of preview of that with the tablets of stone that are shattered and the new tablets of stone. It's still tablets of stone, so it's still within the realm of the old covenant. But that double covenant at Sinai is foreshadowing the double covenant that is uh, that overshadows the entire history of the Bible. So um, I think Moses in this in that framework plays a mediatorial role. He's kind of a, a Christ figure. He's a sin-bearing figure, as it were. He bears the curse of Israel on himself. He's willing to bear the curse of Israel on himself. And in a sense, he does. He goes through the death and resurrection that Israel deserves so that Israel can be renewed in covenant with Yahweh. So that's um, those are some hints about what we got, what's to come in chapter 10. Uh, but we're going to begin by looking at the prayer uh, at the end of chapter 9. And I think we broke off somewhere in the vicinity of chapter 9, verse 22, where we have this uh, kind of interruption. Moses has been talking about one particular incident, the golden calf incident, which happened at Sinai. Uh, and then in verse 22, 23, he talks about several other incidents of rebellion and brings it up to date. Uh, verse 24 is the conclusion that he gives, you've been rebellious against Yahweh from the day that I knew you. Uh, and then after that kind of digression, uh, he goes on with the prayer. He falls before the Lord 40 days and 40 nights, and he prays that prayer. So verse 25 says, 
40 days and 40 nights. That's a long time. You just mentioned that this is kind of a symbolic death here. Do you think this is literal, that he was literally prostrate for 40 days and 40 nights? Or was this a repetitive thing on the mountain where he'd do this 40 days and 40 nights? It's just hard to kind of imagine someone doing this for 40 days and 40 nights. So you're wondering whether it's consecutive or whether it's periodic. He's he's falling yeah, before yeah. the Lord and then he's he gets up and falls before the Lord again. So yeah, I mean, exactly. Exactly. The, the um, day and night pattern. I mean, you uh, you you might be able to justify a not a continuous prostration by thinking in terms of the sacrificial system, which talks about continuous offerings morning and evening. But those continuous offerings are not being offered constantly. They're offered at the yeah. morning. And then again at the evening, I've always thought about it as a kind of superhuman, you know, prostration and fasting for forty days and forty nights. That's continuous, but I, I suppose yeah, there's yeah. there's open to have uh, an alternative. Well, yeah, well, Peter, that's I've always thought about that too, just being you know rather miraculous, but yet it's just pretty astonishing that forty days and forty nights, and of course it also lining up uh, in some ways with some some deeper meaning with the 40 days, 40 years of wilderness wandering and other 40 day kind of events in the scripture. So it has that symbolic force of a testing is Moses being tested here is Moses being tried. Uh, will he last 40 days and 40 nights? Apparently he does. And surely, as you just said, it's kind of a death and resurrection story, just like the story of Israel as a death and resurrection story. The 40 days and 40 nights pattern is also interesting in the mention of the days and nights. And we have the 40 days and 40 nights of the rain falling in the flood. We have 40 days and 40 nights of Moses going up upon the mountain the first time and then going up on the mountain the second time. And then you also have references to 40 days and 40 nights in Elijah after he eats the meal that's given to him by the angel he goes in the strength of that for 40 days and 40 nights to Sinai and then you also have Christ fasting for 40 days and 40 nights and apart from that there aren't that many references to days and night periods um you might think about um the story of Jonah, three days and three nights. But for the most part, we measure these things merely in days. And so perhaps we're supposed to see some analogy between these different events in which it is most typically 40 days and 40 nights rather than some other quantity. You might think there perhaps of the analogies between the flood and the event of the golden calf. There is a uh, there are a series of um, similarities. We might think about the way that there's the um, the box of the Ark of the Covenant, which is overlaid with glorious gold, whereas the Ark is a wooden box, again, given specific dimensions, overlaid with pitch. And we have the same sort of reason for the Lord to destroy the people. And then after the event of judgment, a sort of reaffirmation of the problem. Um, as if it's not been fully resolved. In both cases, there's a seven-day and 40-day pattern 
seven days preparing to go up on the mountain and then 40 days going up or seven days um, in preparation for the flood and then the 40 days of the rain. And it seems that Moses almost averts a flood-like judgment by his intercession for the people. The Lord says that he will start again with Moses and yet Moses intercedes for the people so that, as it were, the people are rescued and included with him, with Moses himself as the sort of ark. And that, I suspect, is part of what's going on with the, the reference here. His intercession for the people is also noteworthy in the way that, referring back to Exodus 32 to 34, the way that he appeals to God's character and the grounds upon which he can make his case where he starts with the reference to Israel as the Lord's heritage and people that he had delivered and taken for himself, and then the reference to the patriarchs and the covenant, and then the way that the Lord's fame and name among the nations depends upon um, the way that he completes this act, and then reaffirming that fundamental claim of the Lord taking Israel to himself. The other connection with the flood narrative, Alistair, and that was all great is just the theme of remembrance. So the Lord uh, is petitioned by Moses to remember. Uh, and also in what is it? Genesis eight, one, it's the Lord remembered uh, Noah and, um, and the floods stopped. There is this, and of course the, the, the war bow, the rainbow is God's promise uh, when he sees it to remember his covenant. So that's, that's there too. Yeah, I think the the original day and night, of course, is the creation days and nights, evenings and mornings, and the listing of days. It's not forty, but there is a. It's not day and night exactly, but it's uh, evenings and mornings, which uh, may may connect this with a with a uh, with a creation narrative, a recreation narrative. And I think the forty, uh, like Alistair was saying, you've got these forty links with the flood. You've got forty links, of course, with Israel in the wilderness. And that reinforces the idea of Moses as kind of the embodiment of Israel. And he goes into this kind of death. He goes through a wilderness experience himself on behalf of Israel so that Israel can be renewed. I want to pick up on the the, the rhetoric of the prayer that Alistair was talking about. Uh, as Alistair said, he starts out uh, uh, talking about, uh, Yahweh God, do not destroy this people. There's kind of a direct petition. But then there's this uh, listing of there's this reminder of Yahweh's relationship with Israel, your inheritance, you brought them out of Egypt uh, with a mighty hand, your greatness. And I think that's pointedly directed back to Yahweh's own response to the golden calf. If you look back at verse 12, uh, this is Moses telling the story of the golden calf. He's on the mountain and Yahweh said to me, arise, go down from here quickly for your people whom you brought out of Egypt have acted corruptly. They've quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They made a golden calf for themselves. So uh, the Lord is making Moses responsible for the Exodus. It's your people. And part of the prayer is to reverse that. It's, uh, Moses does this, uh, this kind of thing in uh, Numbers 11 too, when he prays to the Lord. And uh, uh, he, the, uh, am, uh, did I bring out of, uh, Israel out of Egypt? Was I the, was I the nursemaid who carried Israel through the wilderness. And the implication is that I'm not the one who brought them out. You're the one who brought them out, Yahweh. You're responsible for them. <laughs> and so you should take care of them. So that's the that's an interesting first move of the prayer in contrast to the way that Yahweh had responded to the idolatry. 
Yeah, the other elements of the prayer, um, as Alistair already said, um, and, and Jeff, the, the remembrance of the fathers. Uh, there's this appeal to Yahweh's commitment that he's already made, uh, and that that memory should kind of overwhelm Yahweh's view of the stubbornness of the people. Don't look at that, but rather look at Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, which is what the Lord is eventually going to do. He's going to overlook, he's going to put uh, Israel's sin behind him, and he's going to remain uh, committed to Israel even in the midst of their sin because of the covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's going to be loyal to that regardless. And even when the covenant tablets have been shattered, it's interesting. It looks like the covenant is broken, but Yahweh's commitment to, to Israel because of the fathers remains. So that his commitment is uh, is to the terms of the covenant in a sense. That's certainly the case. But I think the the overriding commitment, the the commitment to the terms of co- the covenant, is encompassed by his commitment to Israel herself, to the people, uh, and that rests on his commitment that uh, the promise that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's interesting, isn't it? That I totally agree that what what God is being faithful to here is the covenant um, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. At the same time, it's just said, isn't it? Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and and Jacob. And so I do think part of what's being stressed is their faithfulness as opposed to um, Israel's current unfaithfulness. So it's remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as opposed to um, the stubbornness of this people later in the same verse. And you do get this brought out. Is it Genesis 25, where God says to Abraham, you know, because you have um, obeyed me, I will bless all the nations of, of the earth through you. And, and there, there does seem to be this dual aspect of, yes, God has, has made the covenant with them, will be faithful to them, but in and through it, he, he has caused them to be obedient. And um, it, it seems, relatedly, it's interesting, this term stubbornness um, of your people it's got the same um uh kind of root beneath it uh that describes the hardness of uh pharaoh's heart and and also that describes the the stiff necks of the um israelites and and so it feels very much look on the basis of their behavior obviously this is the point paul makes there's nothing to distinguish pharaoh and the egyptians from um israel but nevertheless um for your servant's sake, um, uh, preserve them. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, I notice here also that in verse 27, um, remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, don't regard the stubbornness of this people or the wickedness of their sin. That that Hebrew word there, wickedness, is the same word used in back in Deuteronomy 9, the beginning, where Moses says to the people, look, it's not your righteousness. That's not what brings you into possess a land, but it's because of the wickedness of the nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Same thing is said in verse five. Uh, that puts them on par, basically, with the Canaanites in many ways. Uh, well, in in this basic way, and also it drives us back again to uh, the previous time where this word was used, which is Genesis six, where. Remember, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and um, and that's what brought about the flood. So Israel is uh, just as wicked as the Canaanites, but is 
is the recipient of the Lord's sovereign mercy and because of his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, and that's, that's why uh, he will not forsake them. Yeah, that's a that's an important point to remember uh, that uh, this is the, the the whole reason for Moses telling the story of the golden calf is to reinforce the point that he makes repeatedly at the beginning of chapter nine. It's not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you the land, and the last time he does that, he says uh, you're not righteous. That's why it's not because of your righteousness. And then that's that's the that's the that's the theme. Or that's the statement that initiates his review of the golden calf incident, and embedded in that are all these other acts of rebellion. Before going to chapter ten, I should think about verse twenty-eight. Alistair has mentioned this already, but just to reinforce this, uh, Moses' appeal uh, is to Yahweh's memory; it's to his commitment to Israel as his own inheritance, his kind of family heirloom, as one commentator uh, puts that term. But it's also about Yahweh's reputation among the nations. If if Yahweh brings Israel to Sinai and they die at Sinai, or if he brings them to Kadesh and they die at Kadesh, he brings them to Moab and they're at the edge of the land and they don't go into the land, uh, then uh, his reputation as a uh, as a God of power, uh, as a God who's selected Israel, who's made promises to Israel, uh, is in danger. Uh, the land is going to criticize him, uh, the people of the land, obviously, but uh, verse 28 actually personifies the land. The land is going to bring up this charge, the same charge that uh, the Israelites brought up against the Lord at Kadesh. Uh, you brought us out here to kill us in the wilderness because you hated us. It's kind of a, uh, in in the context of Kadesh, it's a kind of inverted confession of faith. It's a confession of the Exodus, but it's not because of Yahweh's love for Israel that he brought them out of Egypt, but because of his hate. Uh, and if if uh, Yahweh allows Israel to be destroyed, or if Yahweh himself destroys Israel at Sinai, then uh, that's going to be his reputation. Uh, this is a God who can't follow through, who can't bring Israel into Egypt. So the the glory of Yahweh's own name is part of the appeal that Moses makes. It is for the sake of Israel, yes, and it's for the sake of his promise, but it's always Yahweh, also Yahweh's own reputation. Uh, that's, a, that's a huge theme in other parts of the Bible. It's a huge theme in the book of Ezekiel, for example, prophecy of Ezekiel, uh, that the Yahweh does what he does for the sake of his name, so that his reputation as, a, as the God of power and also a God of faithfulness is going to be established. And the God of love, because notice what Moses says, uh, the people say it's because he hated them. Love is a is a huge uh, theme in the book of Deuteronomy, the love of God and the love we should have for God. And if the Lord doesn't follow through on his promises, then everyone will believe that he hated Israel and not love them. Right. I was going to make that point, Jeff. What the nations say is, or would hypothetically say, is kind of framed as the 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 worst possible misunderstanding of the Lord's motives. Um, the Lord has redeemed Israel precisely because um, he loves them, um, and they'll say it's because he hated them, and precisely to give them life um, in a new land rather than, you know, what will be claimed to put them to death in the wilderness. So it, it's like, um, you know, a, a polar opposite misunderstanding that Moses is, is saying people are going to get of God's character. 
So as I said in the intro, uh, chapter nine leaves us with kind of a cliffhanger. We don't actually hear Yahweh's response. Uh, so that the the continuation of the story cover, uh, goes past the chapter break, and chapter ten is is Yahweh's response. It's interesting that it's not a response like uh, he doesn't overtly agree to to uh, preserve Israel. He doesn't he doesn't overtly agree to uh, forgive them. Instead, he gives Moses a set of instructions that indicate that the covenant is going to be renewed. Uh, not the covenant actually uh, exactly continued, but there's going to be a new phase or version of the covenant uh, because Moses is going to cut out new tablets and Yahweh is going to write the Decalogue again on those new tablets, just as he did before. And then those tablets are going to be preserved permanently in the ark that uh, that Moses makes for them. Uh, there's uh, several, several things that come up in these opening verses of chapter 10 that I'm curious to know what you think. Um, First of all, one of the distinctions between the first and the second phase of this Sinai covenant is the tablets themselves. In the first instance, Yahweh delivers tablets that are already written to Moses. But in the second instance, Moses himself is the one who's hewing them out and carving them out, graving them. Is The, the word for graven image is uh, uh, pasal, is the verb that's used here for what he's doing to the stones. Uh, he's preparing stones, and then Yahweh writes on them. But it's Moses who has the stones and lugs them up the mountain so they can be written on, then lugs them back down. So that's a difference between the two, but uh, what does it mean? I, 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 don't know what the, I don't know what the rationale is there. And then the other, uh, another problem that comes up is the question of the ark. What is this ark? Is it the ark of the covenant, the same ark that is referred to back in Exodus? Uh, if so, it seems to be uh, an odd placement. The ark, the instructions for the making the ark of the covenant in the sequence in Exodus were given prior to the golden calf incident. So Moses has already been told to have an ark made, and then the golden calf incident happens, and then the ark is actually made. But it's made according to the instructions that were given previously. Uh, in this case, it seems like the instruction to make an ark, a coffer, uh, is given after the golden calf incident. Uh, it's an ark of acacia wood, which is the same as the Ark of the Covenant that's described in Exodus. But of course, in Exodus, it's covered over with gold inside and out, and it has a lid on it. So and some commentators have su suggested that this is something, some additional chest that's specifically for the tablets. Um, that doesn't fit with other parts of the uh, parts of the uh, the Bible that indicate it's the, the, particularly Hebrews, I think, that would indicate that the, the Ark that is the Ark of the Covenant is the one that contains the tablets and the the jar of manna uh, and the the uh, rod of uh, uh, of Aaron is associated with that. But um, what do you make of the fact that the instructions to make an ark uh, are given in this context in Deuteronomy? It seems to be a different context than what happens in Exodus. Or it's certainly possible that this ark is just the first uh, edition of the second ark that Bezalel and others will craft uh, according to the model that is given to them on the mountain. Uh, so Moses here is an ark builder. Moses an ark builder is fascinating in lots of different ways. The ark instructions are given in chapter 25, and we don't actually have the building, the construction of the ark until chapter 37, um, after the event with the golden calf. And 
at stake in the incident with the golden calf and its aftermath is the question of whether God's presence will go up with them. And so I wonder whether this should be read almost against the backdrop of that, because if this event with the golden calf throws everything about God's presence with Israel as they go into the land into question, it throws the um, building of the tabernacle into question. And so this instruction that they place the uh, that Moses placed the tablets within this ark that he has to construct reaffirms the construction of the tabernacle in the context of the gift of this new um these new tablets and I suppose confirms what we have at the end of chapter 34 after Moses intercession for the people and concerned that the Lord won't just bring them into the land, but he will go with them and his presence will be in, the, in their midst. Um, this actually confirms that. Um, and so where we have the reaffirmation of the covenant, this is also the reaffirmation of the presence in the form of the, um, the central object within the tabernacle around which everything is ordered that is the great symbol of the Lord's presence in their midst. Yeah, both both those comments are helpful. Just to clarify what Jeff, what you were saying, Jeff, were you suggesting that this might be kind of a temporary chest? If we put this back into the context of Exodus, the Ark of the Covenant, as described in Exodus 25, has not yet been made. And Moses makes a kind of mock-up that's later either going to be replaced or glorified by Bezalel and Aholiab. Is that the kind of thing you were suggesting? Yeah, that, that's exactly what I was yeah. suggesting, because that also happens, remember, with the tent of meeting. There is a tent of meeting before the tabernacle is actually constructed. Right. Uh, so there's a similar kind of thing going on there, I think. Right. Yeah, I like Alistair's suggestion, too, that it's it fits with the instructions to hew out new tablets. That means things are going to continue. Uh, make the box means, you know that that uh, that arc that I described earlier. We're still going to go ahead with that. Yeah, that's I like that. Thanks. I also wonder if there's um, something here going on. Um, Peter, you spoke about the fact that in these two covenants, or rather in this renewed covenant, there seems to be a kind of a move towards a new covenant fulfillment in in terms of what what's going on here. It's not just a kind of back to square one it's something beginning with a new generation and i wonder if these um details foreshadow or or at least play into that in in some way and so rather than just being given some tablets you know Mo- moses is bringing things um to god and presenting them to god and god is going to then kind of engrave them and then those tablets aren't just sort of carried away but they're they're implanted um somewhere and obviously this um chapter is going to go on later to talk about the circumcision of the of the heart isn't it and i wonder if the kind of just the the slightly greater involvement of moses um uh in this particular cutting of the covenant has more to do with the way in which a, a human nation is is going to be presented to um, the Lord whom he is going to uh, shape and and transform. Yeah, that was, that was uh, I hadn't thought about it as clearly as that, but that was one of the thoughts that occurred to me that you have uh, kind of a, uh, the, the first, the first tablets are given kind of 
uh, uh, monergistically directly from Yahweh, but you have this divine human uh, collaboration for the making of the second covenant um, that um, that yeah seem, does seem to put ahead. And I thought, uh, yeah, your point about the, the the tablets going into the interior of something also, you know, it occurs to me that there's some plague there with the law being printed on the heart. Yeah, and I wonder if there's also something um, that can be said in terms of the scene in Joshua. So, I mean, if we think about what happens to these uh, tablets, you know, the first set has been shattered and and dissolved in water, really, and and now new ones are presented and, and laid up. And it seems in some way to foreshadow, and I haven't kind of thought this through entirely, but to foreshadow the situation with Joshua, when the Jordan is crossed, you get 12 stones symbolising Israel, which are set up, you know, erected in the Jordan, seems to me, and which I guess would have slowly dissolved um, over time. And then others are kind of laid up, set up in the land um, itself. And and so you've got this kind of uh, slightly parallel situation with two different copies of these kind of stone memorials, which I'm, I'm sure there's sort of something too, but I, I'm not quite putting the pieces together as yet. Yeah, thanks. That's that's all helpful. That that makes sense of the uh, couple of those odd details. Uh, after after we have this description, Moses does what the Lord said. He's given these commands to make an ark and to cut tablets and to ascend the mountain. He does all that. Uh, the center of uh, the first five verses is, is a chiasm of the centers on the beginning of verse four. Yahweh writes the tablets like the first writing, the ten words which the Lord spoke on the mountain. So. Um, those words are renewed and Moses brings them down and puts them in the ark. Then we have this odd digression for several verses um, from verses six through nine seems to be a digression that again, picks up a travelogue. Uh, we had, we had kind of that same digression back in chapter nine also, but um, I mean, partly in the context, it means that Israel is in fact moving on. Uh, they're not stuck at Sinai, but they're going to go on to the land. So there's that aspect of it, but both of the, uh, phases of the travel of the journey that are described here end with some reference to priests. So they they move on. They come to Masara, and Aaron dies in numbers. He dies at Mount Hor, but Masara apparently is near Mount Hor. Aaron dies and he's buried. He's replaced by his son Eliezer. And then there's a further travelogue, and verses eight and nine say that it's at the time that they get to Jakbatha uh, that. Um, uh, Levi is designated and separated off as the tribe that's going to carry the Ark of the Covenant. So both of the, both of these bits of the journey end with some reference to uh, the appointment of priests. Aaron being mentioned here in verse eight makes sense, given Aaron's role in the Golden Calf incident. We're not uh, Moses doesn't mention Aaron's role. Well, he, he does mention Aaron's role actually in chapter nine. I forgot that in verse twenty, uh, the Lord was angry enough to destroy Aaron. Aaron lives on past the golden calf, but then he dies elsewhere in the wilderness, uh, and he's replaced. And then uh, the other part of the travelogue ends with the reference to the Levites. So it, it's it's fitting that Aaron be mentioned there. I think here's here's my thought about why this uh, why this little digression about the appointment of priests comes here. Um, I'm thinking in terms of uh, the Hebrews axiom that where there is a change of law, there's also change of priesthood. Uh, or where there's a change of priesthood, there's also a change of law. It's the way that it goes in Hebrews. But those two things are 
linked up together. So here we have a renewal of the covenant. And uh, just in the aftermath of that, Moses recounts that the priesthood was renewed by the death of Aaron and the appointment, the ordination of Eliezer to priest in his place. Uh, and then uh, a reference to the Levites are going to be carrying the covenant. So it it seemed like the arrangements of priesthood are linked up with the this new delivery of the Torah of the of the Decalogue rather, uh, and this new covenant that's made at Sinai. And don't you think also that the way this is phrased with the um, with Aaron with the Levites with them carrying the Ark of the Covenant, with them standing before Yahweh to minister him, with them blessing in his name, and then Levi having no portion or inheritance in the land. This seems to me like, all right, so the covenant has been renewed, is broken, it's been renewed, and Moses has been the the uh, the human uh, mediator, prophet, uh, priest, who has accomplished this uh renewal it's been it's been restored through the agency of of Moses but Moses is going to die uh, just like Aaron is going to die and so the continuity is going to be maintained because the the the, the Levites are going to be like Moses they're going to carry the ark of the covenant and they're also going to stand before the Lord to serve him to intercede for the people and like Moses, uh, who has no inheritance in the land, they're not going to have an inheritance in the land either because they have this special place in the ministry, in the service of Israel, in service of the Lord to Israel. Yeah, that's really helpful. And and I think that uh, that's that's uh, reinforced by what we find later on in Deuteronomy and the, the role that the Levites and priests, the phrase in Deuteronomy is Levitical priests. The role that they play uh, as teachers, as judges, in some case. So, I, yeah, that's. I think that fits with what's uh, what's to come in the book of Deuteronomy. We might also think of the ways in which, in the case of Numbers twenty-five, for instance, and Phineas is set apart after his action of zeal in stopping the plague with the um, events of Baal appeal. You have here the zeal of the Levites in rallying around rallying to Moses at the time of the golden calf and standing against their brethren who are rebelling against the Lord and engaging in this idolatry. This sets them apart as fitting guardians of the worship of Israel. And later on, we can see that same zeal used to defend the people in going out among the people when the plague of the Lord breaks out and in other occasions. And here we see, I think, beyond that, a trait that has defined the Levites from the first time that we encounter them in places like Genesis 34, the zeal for which they act, with which they act to avenge their sister Dinah, and as a result, receive a sort of curse in Genesis 49, where their violence and their zeal leads to them being scattered among Israel. This is the um, reversal, well, the turning around of that initial curse or judgment. So the judgment is still in effect, but in a way that turns out to be a blessing. And that zeal of Levi is something that we see um, in a positive form in Moses, of course, but then in other key Levites. And so this point where they're set apart 
think connects them with the golden carp incident and their status as those who will be the zealous guardians of the Lord's holiness and also the protectors of his people from God's judgment breaking out upon them. When you say in Moses, Alistair, are you having in mind his slaying of the Egyptian back in um, Exodus 2 or, or, or the more recent incident? Um, from that point onwards, I think that already is a sign of his zeal, even if it needs to be tamed and redirected. This characteristic of zeal, I think, really defines Moses throughout his life. Um, he is zealous for the Lord's holiness and his name. And that's even seen in the way that he prays. And even when he's interceding for the people, there's still that zeal for the Lord's holiness, his reputation, his um, his honor among his people and among the nations. And that, I think, leads him to be able to enact the Lord's anger and wrath in bringing judgment upon the people. Um, but also in a way that protects the people from the full measure of God's wrath if no judgment was enacted upon them. I think we see that as a way in which someone like Moses can protect the people from the Lord's anger by being angry on the Lord's behalf towards them. Um, might think of the ways that um, Moses stands on the side of the Lord brings a judgment against the people by making them drink the water of judgment of the golden calf. And then the Levites stand with him and kill 3,000 of their brethren. And in doing that, they are aligning with the Lord who otherwise would have wiped out the whole people. And that inaction of judgment and anger um, protects the people from the full measure that would otherwise come upon them. I think the case of Phineas is another good example of this by slaying that sinful couple, the leading, the Simeonite prince and the woman he was with. He protects the whole people from the full measure of the plague and it largely just comes upon the Simeonites. That's very helpful, Alistair. I mean, I'm sure we can see, um, you know, um, what's the word, um, a fulfilment of that kind of thing in the life of Christ insofar as in, in Jesus's kind of cursing, really, of the um, Pharisees and of Jerusalem, saying that the righteous blood shed kind of from Abel onwards is going to come upon you. So it's Jesus who pronounces um, that curse and then, in a sense, on, on the cross bears it as well. And so the sense in which that's foreshadowed in, in Moses, I, I think, is a very illuminating one. As I said before, the uh, the story of the golden calf kind of closes out at verse 10 of chapter 10. Yahweh was not willing to destroy you. And then Yahweh says, arise, go on your journey. So the the uh, progress toward the promised land is going to continue in spite of Israel's sin. Yahweh is going to fulfill his promises. Uh, and then the rest of the chapter is uh, about what Israel needs to do in order to ensure that that renewed covenant remains in force. And what does Yahweh ask of you uh, in verse twelve? And it's uh, a series of uh, a series of exhortations: fear the Lord, walk in His ways, love Him, serve Him with all your heart and soul. There's allusions, of course, back to the Shema in chapter six: to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and might. And here it's love and serve Him and keep His commandments. 
And then you have uh, verses uh, 14 through uh, 19 have have this neat little structure. You have a verse 14 declares something about Yahweh, um, and then uh, verse 15 talks about Yahweh's relationship to Israel. Yahweh is the one to whom heaven and the highest heaven, earth and all that's in it belongs, and yet he desired to love you. Uh, that's in verses 14 and uh, 14 and 15. And then 70 through 19 kind of parallels that reasoning. Uh, it has this declaration about Yahweh uh, as the God of gods, Lord of lords, and so on. And then in spite of being this exalted God, his attention is to do justice and his uh, he he pays attention to the uh, to the to the weak to the abused and executes justice for orphans and widows and loves them uh, and then ex- exhorts Israel to do that so in both cases we have this description that you could I mean want to use a, uh, some language from outside the text that God's transcendence his uh, ex- uh, his transcendence over creation he everything belongs to him he's the God of God and Lords of Lord Lord of Lords but that's immediately followed by the imminence of God, its attention to Israel and the love that he has for Israel, uh, and that particularly the love that he has for the orphan, the widow, and the alien. And the, the, the structure of the passage suggests a, a parallel between the Lord's care for and love and devotion to Israel on the one hand, and his care for and love and devotion to orphans, widows, and aliens on the other. The, the parallel of the structure suggests that Israel is kind of the paradigmatic orphan and widow people that the Lord has shown kindness to, uh, and he's fed them and clothed them. And then, of course, the exhortation is that they must do the same. They should imitate imitate the Lord in showing mercy and, and loving the aliens the, uh, that, uh, that are in the land. The emphasis throughout here is also upon the underlying attitudes that Israel is called to exemplify, not merely um, external observance of commandments. The observance of the commandments really will follow from the right underlying attitudes, the attitudes of loving the Lord and serving him with all their heart and soul, and also a recognition that the commandments are not without reason. They are given for their good out of the love of the Lord for them, and with the end of their thriving and flourishing as a people. And that posture is something that we encounter throughout the book of Deuteronomy, um, which makes very clear that the oppositions that we often set up between the law and faith or the law and love um, don't actually hold within the Old Testament treatment of the law, for which love is always at the heart of it all. And a posture of faith and trust and dependence upon the Lord is the way in which you fulfill the law. And when Paul and New Testament is using this sort of material, it's working very much with the grain of the text itself in Deuteronomy. It's not teaching something novel. And that concern that their hearts be dealt with and that their hearts be circumcised to the Lord and not be wild and wayward, um, that really is at the heart of the the covenant. And we see that theme coming up later on in chapter 30, where the Lord himself will at some point in the future circumcise their hearts, a form of promise that anticipates the new covenant promises that we find in places like Jeremiah 31 or Ezekiel 36. 
Yeah, well, I wonder about the uh, the the significance or the symbolism of circumcising the heart. the the full The full phrase in the Hebrew is "circumcise the foreskin of your heart," and immediately follow in verse sixteen by "don't stiffen your neck." Stiffen your neck no longer. Circumcision is a removal of flesh. It's a removal of of a kind of obstacle to fulfillment and fruitfulness. I'm thinking back to Genesis 17 and the original covenant of circumcision, and the effect of circumcision is that. Uh, the immediate effect is that Abraham does have the son of the promise with Sarai. So cutting off the flesh, a kind of symbolic castration means that uh, Abram becomes fruitful. And I wonder if the if the significance of circumcising the heart might be related to that. It's not merely a matter of obedience or kind of softening of the heart, but uh, a promise of the heart becoming uh, becoming fertile and producing good fruit. Yeah, that would also fit, Peter, with verse 15. Notice, yet Yahweh Yahweh set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their seed. Okay, so that connects you back up with Genesis 15, 16, 17, where the promise of the seed of Abraham is given. Of course, then Abraham tries to bring it in through the flesh, and the flesh has to be cut off. But then once the flesh is cut off, uh, then the seed is able to be born, Isaac. Um, so there's this connection between 15 and 16. You got the fathers and seed, and then you have circumcised the foreskin of your heart, um, which, which, so that Israel is the seed um, in some sense, and Israel will, of course, also be the it's from Israel that the seed, uh, singular, will will come. And so circumcision here has this, um, seems to be this future dimension to this future aspect, as I think, as you said, um, to be fruitful, to recognize that if you stop your stubbornness, if you, if you stop your attempt to do things in your, in, in the flesh without the spirit, although spirit's not mentioned here, um, then uh, the Lord will be everything he's promised to be for you, and he'll accomplish his promises for you. Something like that, maybe. Circumcision is used in the connection of fruit from trees in Leviticus 19, suggesting that there may be some, um, there are broader ways that this language can be used and maybe that there is an analogy between Israel as a wild tree that needs to be circumcised or pruned in order to bear fruit to the Lord. And so even though he's able to produce a child through Hagar, um, Abraham is not actually able to bring forth living seed, um, seed to the Lord, the seed of promise. And so his body is described as, as dead, even though he has proven to be um, fertile, and there is this need to prune him in order that he might bring forth, forth living fruit. And within circumcision, there is this symbolic, as Peter noted, symbolic castration, the cutting off of the flesh in that place where it most asserts itself, and a generative organ that represents something of male assertion more generally. And to cut off the flesh in that symbolic part is to represent the condemnation of the whole of the flesh. And of course, in Christ, we see 
the circumcision of the flesh in this more complete sense as Christ cuts off the flesh and his cross in a complete way so that circumcision is no longer needed in the way that it once was. And here we can maybe think also of the ways that circumcision is used for lips, for heart, and all these other organs that in order to become fruitful and in order to become holy, they need to be um, have the flesh removed from them, the things that make them hard and stubborn and resistant. And in order to be suited for the bearing of promise and life, they need to have divine action upon them, dealing with that underlying problem of um, fallen human nature. And that, I think, maybe helps us to understand this broader promise and this broader calling, but also this promise to circumcise your hearts and then the promise that follows from that, the Lord will circumcise their hearts, that that flesh problem at the heart of the people is something that needs to be dealt with. If you're going to love the Lord your God with all of this heart, it needs to be a heart that's purged of its um, fleshly commitments and its fleshly attitudes and postures. And that is what will make it suitable for the covenant and suitable for fruitfulness in the Lord's service. Yeah, I thought about also Exodus 6 uh, here too. You mentioned lips. You got lips and also ears in Jeremiah that can be uncircumcised. But uh, if if your lips are uncircumcised, then you're not going to be able to accomplish through your words anything substantial. So Moses confesses that he has uncircumcised lips and the Lord speaks to him. And I think that's when he gives him Aaron to be his his spokesman, but Moses' confession there is that my words are not powerful. My lips cannot produce what you expect them to produce, Lord. They need to be circumcised. In fact, he's given, maybe you might even think of Aaron being the new flesh that he's given so that his words might have uh, the power they need to have. Yeah, I'd, I'd like, I like Alistair's way of putting it, that uh, you can produce seed with an uncir- being uncircumcised, what you can't produce is faithful seed. And if you, the key is a circumcised heart. So if you want to produce faithful seed, not just proliferate, then uh, your heart needs to be circumcised, not just your, not just your uh, body. Possibly they link up with the end of the chapter, verse twenty-two. I've been puzzling over why uh, verse twenty-two is the conclusion. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons all. Now, Yahweh, your God, has made you as numerous as the stars of the heaven. Uh, obviously, reference back to uh, Genesis 15 and the covenant with Abraham. That that covenant with Abraham is going to come up in in in, def- in different ways in the next uh, in the next chapter also. So it's kind of that that chapter is kind of hovering around here in Deuteronomy 10, 11. But uh, perhaps the the link of verse 22 with what precedes it is this link with the seed in verse 15 and the circumcision and fruitfulness in verse 16. Uh, and then this is actually the fact that Israel has become as numerous as the stars of heaven is an indication that the Lord is already fulfilling that promise. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. 
For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.